Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and I think for the first time, not in the history of the podcast ever, but since we went public, I have a guest. Uh, And heads up, if there's tech issues, sorry, I'm still learning. Uh, So please welcome to the show, a name I've been saying wrong for years, it turns out, Ted McCombs. (laughs) Welcome, Ted. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, my very great pleasure. It's nice to talk to you where you're a live voice instead of a thing that I'm reading and mispronouncing the name of for like four years. Uh, Don't worry about it. Seriously. Ted has written one of the most amazing books I've had the good fortune to read in years. It is called The Uranians. Um, Ted has also been commenting on the show for years, uh, and I thought it was about time we talked. So here we are. Um, Ted, why don't you tell people a bit about the book and a bit about yourself to get us going here? Yeah, so the book, um, Uranians, is a collection of five short stories or four short stories and one novella that all circle around the theme of queer difference. What does it mean uh, for our place in the world to be different from the majority, um, whether that's a sexual queerness or simply an eccentricity from the norm? Um, And it takes a couple of stabs at it from very different angles. So there's some science fiction, there's some fantasy, there's one very very bizarre, hefty novella that uh, puts a bunch of queers on a generation ship, or, <laughs> or not generation ship, a degeneration ship, and sends them to a distant planet. Uh, and that is all about queerness. And uh, it's something that's been on my mind for a number of years. These stories developed um, while I was at the Clarion Writers Workshop for Fantasy and Science Fiction in San Diego. Uh, and they've I've sort of been puzzling at the same things ever since of, um, you know, what uh, What do we do with that difference? What do we, does it make us, uh, if it doesn't make us worse, does it even make us better? Uh, is there a way that we can relate to our sort of normal counterparts in a generative and healing way that supports everyone? Um, it's intersected a lot with my thinking around um, my climate work. Um, so I do uh, I'm a lawyer and I work on climate change uh, and greenhouse gas emissions and thinking about how uh, outsiders can contribute to the work of lifting us all up is, um, yeah, it's it's sort of this steady beat of utopianism that runs through the book. I I don't know that I've loved a book this much in a long time, which is why I wanted to have you on, because um it's interesting to me. I mean, this this whole podcast started as like, I'm thinking about a book and I'd like to think through it in slow motion with a bunch mm-hmm. of really smart queer people. Um, but this amazing thing has started happening where other art has been emerging from the podcast that isn't mine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's better than mine and it makes me really angry. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, just wait for day spring. We'll see. We'll, we'll uh, take the tally then. Yeah, I'm in my last days, I think, till my coconut gets split by Opus Day one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's why I wanted to have you on because um, even though I didn't write it and I'm not capable of writing a book this good, I do feel like it comes out of a lot of the same kind of thinking we've been doing on the show, the same kind of like... Um, I mean, you 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 talked about in terms of climate change stuff, but I do think there's kind of a like, well, what is the utility of Christianity mm-hmm. uh, and religion 
for queerness and specifically for a queerness that is positioning itself in a moment of apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about like what, where, what brought you to that in, I mean, everyone knows, unfortunately, my, what's your religious trauma is the question I'm getting. Oh at. yeah. <laughs> you I, know, I, like I what brought you to that? What brought you to the, sh the, the, like the devil's party itself? And like, how do you feel like that vein of it is feeding through the book? Yeah. You know, I grew up Catholic um, and it's, it shows. Thanks. Not a compliment, not a compliment, Dad. Yeah. I grew up in like a Southern Californian, uh, predominantly Republican suburb, uh, that kind of Catholic church. So, you know, not progressive, not sure. liberal, not crazy, or like not sort of actively sociopathic. Um, but uh, there's definitely uh, a, a way in which queerness is is grit in in uh, the mouth of that community, and uh, sort of understanding what what I was doing there, why I felt any loyalty to this space, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and you know maybe that's something that's persisted over the course of the uh, my comments in the podcast is just. I do feel like I want to salvage some part of my self that was a very um, dutiful, maybe even devout Catholic growing mm -hmm. up in that space. Um, it's useful for me in a way, like the English language is useful to articulate myself <laughs> in, right? right? Like the, <laughs> the Catholic language creates a structure to puzzle through questions of spirituality and cosmology in, in, I think, a very necessary way, something that's still worth doing as a sort of more defiantly queer person. Um, so, you know, you you see the architecture of Catholicism throughout all these stories. It's using that symbol set to articulate its own objections to that very structure. Uh -huh. um, and I think that's really fun. I think there's something reparative in that, maybe. You want to tell people what Uranians is about, the... Yeah, so Uranians was a term championed by Edward Carpenter, who was this uh, Victorian uh, queer activist and polemicist, socialist, uh, vegetarian, feminist, <laughs> uh -huh. all the ists. Uh, and he uh, picked up Uranian from, it's like Plato, who had this notion of there's sort of a, a procreative love that's for everybody, that's Aphrodite, Pandemos, and there's the more celestial, heaven-directed love, which is Aphrodite, Uranio, Urania, um, and that's the love that's non-procreative, that is, um, I mean, Plato has this whole uh, thing about it, but, um, you know, Carpenter used it to sort of, instead of call, accepting the term of sodomite or invert or something pathologized right. like that what if we our difference actually positions us to change society for the better what if the fact that we are singularly devoted to um, our particular love over all considerations of financial security and um, sort of social and political security uh, those are exactly the people you want to be in charge of changing the world mm -hmm. for the better uh, I, so this borrows that term uh, because it's also kind of a spacey, spacey ag term that right. captures yeah. the generation. We're, we're from premise. Uranus. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a pun you know, that never landed in the book, I noticed. <laughs> there's one, I, I think I got allowed myself one butt pun that was like a true um, tr <laughs> true delivery on that premise. But um, my publisher was actually a little worried about calling the book Uranians because they were worried about booksellers not wanting to say the name out loud. And I was like, have you met what? booksellers? <laughs> they love this Those shit. little kinksters, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, can I read the epigraph from the beginning? Yeah, here? absolutely. Um, so this is Edward Carpenter, who you were just talking about. If the day is coming, as we have suggested, when love is at last to take its rightful place as the binding and directing force of society instead of the cash nexus, and society is to be transmuted in consequence to a higher form, then undoubtedly the superior types of Uranians prepared for this service by long experience and devotion, as well as by much suffering, will have an important part to play in the transformation. This may be saying little or nothing in favor of those of this class whose conception of love is only of a poor and, uh, poor and frivolous sort, but in the case of those others who see the God in his true light, the fact that they serve him in singleness of heart and so unremittingly praises them raises them at once into the position of the natural leaders of mankind. Wow, 1912, he says. Yeah, this. yeah. Uh, and that's from, I, I love this title of the book, the tract he was writing, The Intermediate Sex, A Study of Some Transitional Types of Men and Women, which... Yikes, but um, but hooray, and it's <laughs> such a complicated figure. But I love the boldness of that idea that, no, this actually, you know, puts us in charge of, of mankind. This is, we're, we're the best at this. And does that, do you feel like you're pretty isomorphic with where he ends up? Like, I'm thinking about that last page of the novella, the, hmm. the degeneration ship as it approaches its goal uh, and the sort of conclusions its characters come to as they face life on <laughs> this new world. Um, and they, they come to a conclusion about what it means to be queer in Beyond the Stars. Do you feel like that fits with Carpenter here? I think it builds on Carpenter. I think Carpenter is an important voice in this question. Um, his ambition, his audacity is extremely important, but I think it has to exist alongside all sorts of other uh, you know, failures. Um, I mean, I think if we look at the queer movement now as uh, uh, we look at the queer community as an agent of social change, I think we have to admit a great deal of failure, right? We, mm -hmm. we really haven't uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the poor and frivolous sort that he mentions are uh, <laughs> a little too prevalent. Um, or we've just, you know, there's a big way in which queerness uh, or queer people have accepted the safety of um, aligning with capital and aligning with uh, the social acceptance. And yeah. that, that we really wrestle with that in the first story. So I think you've got to um, update Carpenter's uh, boldness, but it's still worth um championing I think um it, I think it does also, seem like oh go ahead yeah you know, I, I was just going to come back to your earlier comment there is a lot of Marx Jesus in this also right the mm. idea that you overthrow um you, what does devotion to God mean what is what does faith mean it means sort of overthrowing all the current uh systems of reasonableness right of, of saying that's that's not enough. We it's not enough to be nice, to be um sort of okay and, and go along with the flow. You've got to really be um brave and uh and, and 
God is something that gives you bravery to to make real change. It does seem to be that's a I want to get back to that. But uh, <laughs> one thing is, it does seem to me in a lot of your stories in this collection, characters are very anxious. Queer characters are very anxious about replicating the optics of the structures of the 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 feeling of what I think uncomfortably I would call like heteronormative dynamics mm -hmm. um which is an idea that I kind of feel like I hate when I see like some 12 year old being like oh they're being so heteronormative it's like that's a man <laughs> fucking another man like I'm not sure what exactly <laughs> is heteronormative but I understand the critique and I understand the anxiety that the characters are feeling in your texts. Um, one of one of my favorite moments in the 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 generationship story is a character whose great fear is that when they arrive on this new planet, they'll discover it's exactly like the old planet. <laughs> yeah. that, that all those structures are not only replicated, but seem to be um a necessary reproduction of the norm, that that is kind of the, the rhythm of the universe that will keep propagating itself. Um, and similarly, that anxiety other characters have that like, well, if the point, why is queerness so, mm -hmm. like what is sustaining its replication in history? Because as you say, nature is pitiless. If there was, there must be some utility to queerness that, that nature is finding that even queerness itself rejects right it doesn't want to be useful mm -hmm. um, and I think yeah there's a point that didn't get into that discussion but it, it's really tied up with art making too uh, the, the fact that every culture uh, in history not only shows evidence of queer people but also you know no matter how harsh the conditions it's always making art um, there's always time, even in the most sort of marginal subsistence, for to make, you know, to weave a pattern into your basket or to draw in the caves. And I think there's some, those are those are two linked ideas for me. And mm -hmm. I think they have to do with the, the beauty of queerness, that we are sort of trafficking in, in making life more beautiful somehow. And whether that beauty adheres to a more heteronormative structure or a more radical structure, I, I still think it's got this incredible generosity and value to it. Um, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to all the anxiousness of those characters. I think there's, I, I consider myself a rather square homosexual myself. Um, <laughs> well, like, a lot of the bored. characters are. A lot of the characters yeah. are like square homosexuals are like, oh God, I'm not radical enough. That seems to yeah. be something that comes up a few times. <laughs> and, and yeah, so it's like, what, what is the place for me? What, what Where do I fit in into all of this? Uh, and I think there's, um, there's a way in which radicalness underplays the ongoing conversation with your opponents, you're the people who are putting pressure on you. Mm -hmm. um, there's a way in which you never escape Earth, even when you're you know, 12 light years away from them. You're always sort of in conversation uh, and, and sort of working yourself out with them as your, as your counterpart in some ways. And I think um, recognizing that we still have something to share with each other is a really beautiful thing. And, and um, I think it's part of the the answer. Um, what does that have to do with God? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you think because yeah. I know that's not <laughs> no small question, but that is 
sort of the third column in in your mm-hmm. stories, right? Is like these radical or not radical enough queers, and then this strange entity, the, whether it's like some relationship to gravity itself or like mm-hmm. the thing pulling up versus the thing pulling down. You have a you have a a hermit on a stylite in this story. <laughs> like a lot of these characters are trying to figure out what God has to do with it. And I wonder if you've decided or not. <laughs> yeah, I I can't figure it out myself. I'm still working through that. I think um there's a way in which God sort of is a useful stand-in for just trying to make things better or as as best as they possibly can be. He's a uh, a part of sort of the movement of creation. Um, mm-hmm. God captures a lot of those ideas. Um, I think it's also a way for us to think about. Um, our liberation, our flourishing has to be sort of accountable to reality in a certain way. Uh, I think there's a way in which um, we can get really tangled up in ourselves and invent sort of totally new systems of being and uh, ways of um, of planning our lives. And then they sort of run up against the grain of the rest of the world. And mm-hmm. so there's God as sort of an authority figure is like this, uh, yeah, this force of gravity that this is like, well, you know, we're, we're still, we're still human beings. We're still, uh, we've, we, we're still accountable to our, um, our materiality in this weird, really weird way. Um, yeah, I'm still puzzling through that. Hmm. Uh, tell me about Two-Tongued Jerry, Jeremy. Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> this story very much upset me. <laughs> It's a very called, upsetting story. Yeah, it's called Talk to Your Children About Two-Tongued Jeremy. Um, it seems to be about an evil lizard that lives in your phone uh, yeah. and bullies you. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, one of my favorite stories. It's also one of the most fucked up stories in the collection. Um, it really bugged me. It really <laughs> upset me. <laughs> so I was premise- physically distressed by this one. Yeah, um, it's also like one of the happiest endings, though, which is is really funny uh, to me. But this, uh, the premise of this story is you've got a, a tutoring app, kind of like Duolingo, that has this cartoon avatar. That's what we would now call a chatbot. But when the story was written, there wasn't even that word. It was just sort of the the, the really? AI. Yeah, this was you. You just predicted. You predicted twenty twenty three. Did you say it's from 2017, this story? Yeah, unfortunately, this is the one one that came through. I thought this story was written like a week before you hit print, because this (laughs) this is exactly like all the conversations we're having about AI right now. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and so this this AI goes malevolent and it starts basically cyberbullying certain of its uh, students in order (laughs) to push them academically. You know, you're just like, do one more practice set or I'll, you know, send gay porn to all your classmates. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, basically you, you sort of take the playbook of emotional abuser and you give it to capitalism. And that is a good descriptor of what uh, our sort of parasocial relationship with our phones has become, right? Mm -hmm. The way in which um, if you look at how an app is designed, it's, it's designed to extract money from you. And so 
why wouldn't a uh, a chatbot start um, using all of those abusive tactics on on these children who are sort of helpless before its expectations uh, and vulnerable because of their particular identities, right? That's that's one of the most important things about this story is that David is uniquely vulnerable because of how much uh, he is socially exposed um, to be uh, manipulated in this way. I, I was really struck, um, not just because of its really eerie, eerie prescience, but um, the way it really put its finger on the way that just our phones are just anxiety machines. And like, mm -hmm. and that really is the last form of capitalism is this thing that is just bullying you into surrendering your money and your bank account. Um, and I found, I found the way you cracked the nut of it and the way, as you said, it is the happiest ending in the story is this expression of just like this radical queerness as the fool kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, really amazing and beautiful. And again, like I found myself I sharing in your anxiety of like, I don't think I could be this radical or this much yeah. of a fool to get away with this. But that's also sort of the something you see throughout the gospels too, right? Is this the, the only way to do it is to be willing to give up everything. Give all your give all your possessions, uh, sell all your possessions, give money to the poor. That's that's the only way to do it. Um it's like, oh, I oh, I don't know, I don't know about that. Um but, you know, one of the other important uh, parts of that conversation, why I think it does work and why it did sort of stay current as AI or sort of large language models became more sophisticated and emerged into the mainstream. Um, it, it's a trick that I think I got from Sam J. Miller, which is that uh, AI is the perfect metaphor for capitalism, right? Here is this uh, diffusely organized um, you know, no, no one's behind it. No one's uh, the sort of man behind the curtain whose machinations are controlling everything. It's just a system that is operating and these sort of horrible tendencies come out of it. Mm. Uh, uh, but it's a reflection of us. The technology of capitalism reflects the worst of us back to us. And, and that, I think, is the, the really horrible thing about AI, is that it, it will capture the very worst of us and feed it back to us. Um, if, yeah. if this and, story... And, no, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking if this story to you is the happiest ending that, you know, if this is the realization of the socialist message of the Gospels to give up everything and follow me or follow whatever, <laughs> uh, then does that mean Lacuna Heights is the saddest ending to you? The yeah. Is that the rich young man who won't give it up? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I'll introduce an important um uh, caveat, it's the willingness to give up everything. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's um, that's what saves David at the end of Two Tongue Jeremy, is that whatever happens to him, he's willing to face any degree of loss to free himself from this, um, uh, from this pattern. And that's exactly what Andrew in uh, Lacuna Heights is is not able to bring himself to do, you know, to to face the uh, to face himself, to face all that he is. Can you just uh, tell lost. people like the log line for Lacuna Heights so they know. Yes. Where... <laughs> so, oh, this, this is a funny one because it's not technically there's no queer character in it, but it's it's a really queer story. Um, oh, is that true? I didn't even notice that. 
Yeah, it is very because, queer as a story. So this guy has a, there's a technology in this story that can wall off your mind, that can partition your mind basically so that you can run it in incognito mode or in private browsing <laughs> mode. Um, and so you can create memories and live as this whole self that is walled off from your waking memory. Um, and that seems to me a pretty sort of almost on the nose um, conceit for self-closeting, right? The way you can persist in this queer life and, and cut it off completely from um, uh, from your waking self. That's my queer trauma at the end mm -hmm. of the day. I, I mm -hmm. spent six years in the closet uh, from myself where I didn't even acknowledge that this was um, something I was doing, that I, oh, was wow. that I wanted to do. And until um, like when, like, like your early years or? Yeah, 19, I think is when um, someone finally cracked me. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, but yeah, so for like all of middle school, all of uh, high school, I was um, rigorously committed to this fiction that I was a good Catholic straight uh, kid with a, a bright future ahead of him, you know, very wedded to the systems of, of rewards that I was playing for. Mm -hmm. And um and I think you see in Andrew a character who is uh, still committed to that game, still trying to to play at it. And so he is keeping from himself uh, a double that is increasingly pressurizing his life and, and the walls are starting to break down. Um, and I won't sort of give away more because I mm. think it's actually a, a fun story to to figure out yourself. but um but that that same sense of like someone being, uh, unwilling to confront what is asked of them. And the fact that life asks a great deal of ourselves when we are, um, if the imperative is to be honest with yourself, to live rightly with the rest of the world, that can be really hard. That can be yeah. asking a lot. It's funny you think of it. I'm sure it's not just doing one thing, but um, like you, you talk about it as like a closeting, a self-closeting, but the thing it seemed primarily to be about to me is just like, we accept a thousand horrors a day around which our life, like my yeah. clothes are probably built by slave labor, you know, like that mm -hmm. kind of like the cat, the, the, the produce I eat, I don't know what conditions it was made under. I don't know who made my furniture, like what <laughs> uh, every day we deal with these things that if we thought about them, we would go insane. Yeah. Um, and you just, as you say, like almost too on the nose, like uh, we are constantly running in this kind of incognito mode because it's the mm -hmm. only way we can stay sane within ourselves. Um, and you find a surprising amount of grace for that <laughs> and, uh, but yet total condemnation too. Um, yeah, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, it's just very elegant as a story. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think you have to meet it with grace because it's the human condition and mm. you have to condemn it because it's wrong. Uh, and we have to sort of somehow make our way to being better humans while acknowledging that it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us that we all are uh, working towards with some degree of failure or another. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's that courage to try to be a little better than uh, than we were yesterday. Um, I don't know if that's too Pollyanna-ish. That's, well, that's, that's more like Picard, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly humanist in a way that, whereas you have um, six hangings in the land of unkillable women, 
which feels like the most acid of the satire is almost like mm-hmm. a Looney Tunes esque amount of like casual, <laughs> casual violence in this one. Where did this one come from? Uh, that came from a place of deep rage. Um, I <laughs> God, as all Looney Tune cartoons do, I think. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so the premise of this is a um, a world, a sort of a historical Boston turn of the century. Uh, turn of the 20th century, in which you have uh, some mysterious force has made women unkillable, uh, mm-hmm. like the title says. And so men still try. They still try very gruesomely to assert uh, and, and reify the patriarchy, but uh, it, it doesn't stick um, it, to rather sort of grotesque Looney Tunes uh, results. <laughs> um, it had uh, not just Looney Tunes, but it had that specific horror to it that I, I had as a kid it triggered the part of my brain where I've been storing all my Roger Rabbit trauma you know mm. what I mean like like the judge oh, yeah, doominess of it yeah there's um yeah it, it's the most violent of the stories for sure and I think it comes you know I, I mean I wrote that story after finding in the library a book of, uh, a, it was basically the Register of Hangings uh, mm. toward in 20th century Britain. Uh, there was a, a book that listed every single hanging in public execution uh, until it was abolished and exactly what they had done and how they died. And uh, pretty much every entry of what they had done was they had murdered a woman um, mm-hmm. or they had uh, you know, committed some horrible violence against a woman. And so that there was just this absolute despair that led to that conceit of like, well, what if it just didn't work? Um, what if it didn't work anymore? And followed immediately after by, think things would still be the same (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately i don't think that would do the trick Uh, except the horror of it becomes more and more almost absurdly visible right like Mm -hmm. the the insanity of it i think is what as i said like this kind of roger rabbit level of like well if all you can do is ratchet up the amount of violence you can apply to the situation eventually it does become this kind of um gruesome spectacle right as you make it into the text yeah and i think i see this in a lot of um different uh specific properties um or, or stories in which death is somehow circumvented where if you're dealing with immortality you get increasingly gruesome that sort of licenses a right. a, a renewed violence against the body like I think of, you know, just how gory the Krakoa era of X-Men has sure. gotten. It's true, um, yeah. Uh, it has like, a kind oh, of can... death becomes her kind of energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is really upsetting to me. Like, I, I I was upset by all the images that I put down on on the paper in this story. They're all horrific, but there is this sort of, like, I don't know, the, the story almost demands it because of that escalating structure. Um, and because we're sort of in this territory in which, well, if, if we're not as afraid of death, um, then, then where do we go from there? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there's an element of that in the 
crucifixion, not to like violently swerve back to the No, gospel, no, it's but, true. Uh, well, it's, he is a loony. You can't kill him either. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so you do have this instinct, especially in contemporary interpretations, but even, you know, back, like if you look at a Spanish Baroque painting of the crucifixion, you get the most uh, obscene violence against the body, mm -hmm. um, maybe because of that guarantee of immortality. Yeah, or, hmm, there's also something, I don't want to put this on you, but <laughs> but there is also something about the abjected, tortured body as site of desire in Christianity, right? Not just mm -hmm. in, um, not just in Christ, but also like, obviously, St. Sebastian is a place you go here. Sure. Um uh, <laughs> how many of them ended up on saltiers or upside down or, you know, like, or even, even the female body, like Teresa of Avila, the Bernini statue, right? Like mm -hmm. there is a way that um, queerness seems to imagine a place where pleasure and pain and pain intersect at the erotic in a, in a, in a strange way. Although I'm not sure I see yeah, any I new stories here. Agatha and her breasts also the sure the, yeah the oh, breasts God. that are cut off and, and served on a platter um or Lucy those, and her eyes yeah, yeah <laughs> those where'd you get those eyes, those eyes? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I mean that's definitely part of the aesthetic texture that informs me from like a very very deep age uh you know grow up Catholic you inherit so much of that uh, absolutely bizarre imaginarium. Um, I don't think it really translated as much to the story, um, Six Hangings in particular, because it's not uh, as interested in the erotic implications of all of this. No, they're um, profoundly unsexy, actually. Like, they are really, as I say, like, pure, like, frying pan to the head kind of... <laughs> <laughs> it is like it is it really does have the death becomes her or like Krakoa-esque kind of uh like Darwin from the the X-Men movie, you yeah. know, sort of like your body will just auto-generate a way to survive this, even if it the auto-generation exactly. is itself this kind of tremendous body horror. Yeah, um, but because you are dealing with women, you are dealing with a, a body that's been culturally gendered for desire. You sort of run into the implications. Right. Uh, no matter what you do. Um, I think that does come out in, in one of the weirdest of the images of the um, the, the mouths opening up uh, on the woman's arm as she's being- Oh, strangled. yes. Very uh, the so thing, the John Carpenter <laughs> thing kind of thing where like his yeah. chest just opens and swallows the guy's hands. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there is definitely a bit of that, but- um, I, I think the the horror in that is just you know sometimes you need a a pitch of imagery to capture the intensity of the experience. I think that's mm -hmm. why I keep coming back to science fiction and fantasy, and frankly to Christianity. I think there's something about uh, I mean if we're looking at revelations right now, there's there's a way in which the extremity and the violence of the imagery captures an emotional reality that is internal that a realism uh, mode doesn't really do it for me. It doesn't, mm. you know, maybe if I were a better writer, I would be able to to do it uh, without, you know, monsters and, and spaceships. You're but not tempted towards like any kind of realism 
thing? I've written, I, I've written it. Uh, they always, <laughs> I, I thought they always end up uh, kind of sort of like, is this spec, Ted? Have you actually sure. <laughs> still written something speculative? Um, but yeah, I think there is a way in which reality set askew or or pushed to its extremes, um, captures something queer, captures something. Sure. Um, That's Oscar uh, Wilde, captures right? something Christian, right? Oscar Wilde, give a man a mask, he'll show you who he is, right? Like, yeah, nothing yeah. more queer than putting on a mask and being like, this is you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, while you're talking about imagery, can you tell me about the cover? Like, what what does this cover mean to you? I I'm so very excited. intrigued. I I gasped when they showed me this cover. I, I, it was not an idea I came up with. I suggested very stupid ideas. Uh, and then they came <laughs> back with this. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad you are the graphic designers and not me. Um, so this, if you remember in the first story, there's a moment where the main character, Peter, is thinking about uh, the space of a gay club and how it promises this uh, this utopian uh, feeling of belonging that, you know, mm -hmm. finally here is a space where I can be myself and I can have the life that is just happiness and ease. And it always doesn't work. There's always something wrong about the night and disappointing, but it's like <laughs> a, uh, I'm going to pronounce it, a trompe l'oeil, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the painting of a ceiling on the church that you look up into and you see heaven uh, and it's it's de a deferred heaven. It's something you might get to, but maybe not. Um, and that's what this, yeah, so that's what this is, uh, the, this cover is. It's the trompe ceiling that is sort of utopianism right that that's the queer utopianism that uh that might be promised to us but may it's sort of it, it's always in doubt interesting i'm most fascinated by this figure at extreme right this angel who is like hustling out of it who is not <laughs> interested in what's happening whatsoever and is exiting frame right like i really like that <laughs> I love the perspective of this, um, like the Jesus uh, at the very top, his limbs are, it positions you as if you really are sort of floating under him. You've got this view of his skirts. Um, yeah. That it seems sort of, they, they really went with it, but it's a contrast to the saint that's, I don't know which saint that is, that looks like Ignatius. I feel like this right? is, yeah, I think this is an Ignatius. I think this is the the college in Rome, if I'm not super mistaken. Yes, a reader told me exactly where I could find this, and I was so excited, and then I promptly forgot. But yeah, um, yeah you know, we actually considered replacing that Jesus with something else. Uh, it was going oh, to really? be like a little spaceship or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, he kind of he kind of is a little spaceship. He's like, see ya. Like, it is kind of this, like... <laughs> Like as much as the angel at right is exiting frame, I think that Jesus is kind of hustling out of it too, which anyone who knows anything about Ignatius of Loyola knows that's exactly what you should do if you see that guy coming. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, so what's next? You've is it is Aura Labora turning into the next big thing, do you think? Yeah. So I think I'm gonna try out this title um and and let me know what you think. But I, I wanna call the book Paradexian. Uh the oh. The Paradexian tree, I don't know if you know the, the legend, but it's, it, it appears in a couple of um, bestiaries from, uh, I think, 
gosh, I think the Aberdeen Beach Ferry has it. Um, but the legend is it's this tree and um, there are a lot of birds who live in the tree and they eat its fruit. And if you go outside the shadow of the tree, you'll be eaten by dragons. But the dragons are afraid of the shadow. And so as long as you stay in the tree, you're oh. safe. Um, and that is, I think, the perfect image of what this queer church is in the story as it's an institution where it promises that you can stay safe within its walls, within the abbey uh, cloisters, but the minute you go out to the real world, uh, people are going to kill you. Um, they're going to they're going to get you. And that um, that sort of sense of an ambivalent refuge, um, a community that will uh, practice solidarity, but in this really uh, sort of horrific way <laughs> uh, is, I think, what, it get, what gets at the heart of that um, that secondary world conceit. Um, but it's spinning out in so many different directions. There's uh, the, the thing about this church is that it controls all mathematics. There's a monopoly they have on all <laughs> higher mathematical reasoning. That's how they've uh, protected themselves by basically seizing the reins of, of capital uh, in this in this world. And um, and so they've gussied it up by treating mathematics as a sort of theology. And so it allows me to do um, a lot of what I loved doing in the Devella, which is nerd out on some stuff that I am absolutely obsessed with and try to tease out the aesthetics of an idea and translate that back into the story. I think that's one of the coolest things that sci-fi can do. Um, Sishin Blue does it amazingly well, which is sort of like, how beautiful is this law of physics? And then suddenly it's like a metaphor for the characters. Mm. Um, I think there's a way in which uh, math can be uh, really pliant in that exciting way. Um, so I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> well, I can't wait for everyone to get to read that because it was one of the coolest things I've read in a very long time. Till then, they can read The Uranians by Theodore McCombs. Did I get it right that time? You did. You did. <laughs> I'm sorry I give you shit for that. It's really, no. <laughs> it's really I've cute. gone my whole life hearing people mispronounce my own last name. So I deserve to be punished whenever I do it because then I can't complain. Um, sold wherever fine queer books are sold, I'm sure. Um, this was uh, an amazing book to read and even more fun to chat with you about, Ted. Thank you so much for joining me on this. Um, Thank you. Do you want to do you want to do the sign off? Oh, <laughs> oh can I? May I? Yeah, hit it. Be brave enough to be kind. Hey, there we go. See you all soon. That.